While you're turning there, my name is Taylor Lazenby. I'm the associate pastor at First Baptist Covington downtown. It's my pleasure to be here. It's been about a year since I've been here. About a year ago, my wife and I were called downtown and to serve at the campus there. So this is the first time to be back here with you. It's my distinct pleasure. I love being here. We served here for a year, and I just love the people here. I love the mission. I love the vision here at this campus. I also love coming back and having to preach a really easy and simple text. I love it. I will say this, is, this was scheduled. I was originally supposed to preach this text on December 7th or December 4th. Uh, my wife and I had a baby two days before that. So instead of preaching it before, the week before Advent, we're going to preach it the week after Advent. So glad you're here. The beauty of continuous exposition is that you preach the hard texts. You preach the hard things. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray really quick. Father, give us wisdom this morning. Pierce our hearts. May your word not return void. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So over the past several weeks, really the past several months, this church, the church at Haynes Creek has been going through verse by verse Genesis. But it's been about four or five weeks since we've gotten to hear from the word from the book of Genesis. So let's, let's just get in our minds trying to recap what has happened really over the past 24 chapters of Genesis. So bear with me while I recap so we can kind of wrap our mind around what is happening here. So the book of Genesis starts out and what we see is that there's this all-powerful God who has created absolutely everything. He's different from the rest of the gods that were in the ancient Near East at the time that people worshipped. He's different than all of them because the difference is he just speaks and things come into existence. He speaks, and light and dark separate. He speaks, and the waters and the land separate. He speaks, and he starts to fill the earth with flora and with fauna. And he speaks, and he continues to create, and he creates this beautiful world that is good. And then finally, he caps off his creation by, by creating humanity. 
And humanity was different than the rest of everything else that he created. It was, it was, it was different. It was more. It was, the scriptures say, very good. Humanity was created different, distinct from the rest of creation in that in humanity you have the very image of God. You have the very image of God. This Omago Dei has now been put into the character of humanity. So it's set apart from the rest of humanity from the very beginning. In Genesis 1.28, we see this command that he gives specifically to humanity. Fill the earth with my image. Rule it. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. Take my image to the ends of the earth. And for about a chapter and a half, that, that proved to be true. Genesis 3 happens in, in the fall. Sin enters the world and breaks everything that God had created. Sin breaks the relationship between humanity and with God. Sin breaks the relationship between man and woman. Sin, sin breaks the relationship between humanity and even nature. And so you have this brokenness. This image of God has been broken. It hasn't been destroyed, but it's been broken. And we have a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will one day be a Savior. This proto-euangelion, this first gospel would be preached by God himself as he's hammering out curses to humanity and, and to Satan. And he says there will be one that will come and he will, he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. There will be a Messiah. One will come and he will redeem my people. They, he will fix that broken image. That Imago Dei, that image that has been broken, will ultimately be fixed one day. And after Genesis 3, really what you have from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, time starts moving really quickly. Time moves extremely quickly over the next few chapters, and we see the, really the onset, the effects of sin in the world. Brokenness continues to multiply throughout the world. You see adultery, and you see murder. And you see sin continuing to ramp up until we see in, in Genesis 6 that God decides to just go ahead and pour out judgment on humanity, but save one individual and his family, Noah. At the end of Genesis 5, we see that God favored Noah. That's what the scripture says, that God favored Noah. If you actually take that word favored and, and you transliterate it into the Greek, it's the word charis. Charis is the word for grace in English. So God showed grace to Noah and his family, saved his entire family. And they would be the ones now that would have to take this mission of Genesis 1.28, take my image to the ends of the earth. It's now Noah and his family upon which this promise would rest. But shortly thereafter, sin continues to ravage them as well. And we see just an onslaught of sin against humanity and the brokenness of which it causes. And then we get to Genesis 11 and we see really the pinnacle of what we've seen so far of the sin. We see the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, what you have is you have these people who decide, rather than taking the image of God to the ends of the earth, the scriptures say, let, it, let us build a city for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, we're not going to go to the ends of the earth. We're going to stay right here. Not only are we going to stay right here, we're going to build a tower to our own glory and our own name rather than to God. And so God, in his common grace, decides to disperse them himself. And he really confuses their languages completely because he knows that while they can speak the same language, the ability, the capacity to sin is endless. There would be no cap on the amount of sin that they could do, the amount of destruction that they would cause. So he completely confuses their languages and disperses them himself. And then time slows down. Genesis 12. 
And we see, really, Abraham be called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's a pagan man, knows nothing about God, and he is called by the one true God out of, really, a pagan nation. And God says to him, in very similar language of Genesis 1.28, through you, I'm going to bless the world. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to take my image to the nations. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it's through you that these things are going to happen. Through you, Abraham, through your lineage, through everything that you have, through your progeny, the Messiah ultimately will come. And we see this reiterated in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And as the, as the scriptures continue to focus in on Abraham and Abraham's family, he ultimately is told that he will be given a son. And this is Isaac. So Abraham marries Sarah. They have the son Isaac. And what we see here is that Isaac gets married. And so as we focus our eyes and our hearts back on to Genesis 25 this morning, I want you to notice really the first thing. I want you to notice the death of Abraham. I want you to notice the death of Abraham. What you have with Abraham is this. This is the first patriarch. This is the man through which all of the promises of God will flow through which salvation for his people will come, through which the redemptive historical narrative would play out. And now this man is dead. Abraham has passed on. But surely from the rest of the scriptures of what we've seen is that Isaac knew who the Lord was at this time. He seeks the Lord. We, we have record of him seeking the Lord. And we, we see that Abraham must have probably talked to Isaac about the Lord God. He certainly experienced it in, in the sacrifice of what would be himself. He certainly would see the Lord's provision at that point. But he would have known of the Lord. So I want you to see that the death of Abraham has caused now a little bit of a, not a hiccup, but has caused a change in the overall plan of God, but not a change in his overall sovereignty of how it would be played out. So now Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the one through which the promises of God will flow. So the second thing I want you to see this morning, I want you to see the intercession of Isaac and the faithfulness of God. Verses 19 and verses 20 kind of lay out the generations of Abraham's son Isaac, where he came from and who he married. And then we have in the beginning of verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now think back. Abraham and Sarah struggled to get pregnant too, didn't they? They struggled to have a son. They struggled with infertility. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Sarah was so sure that because of her age and her stage in life that there was no possible way that she would ever become pregnant. And when she was told that she would indeed have a son, she ended up laughing at the face of God and then lying about it. She didn't ultimately trust in his promises. That's why we see Abraham and Sarah really try to take matters into their own hands. And they have Ishmael outside of wedlock. But Isaac, instead of trying to take things into his own hands, he decides, I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to intercede for my wife. The promises are supposed to flow through my father and now through me. I'm going to seek the Lord on this. And so he intercedes for his wife. For 20 years, he interceded for his wife. It's the scriptures say that Isaac was 40 years old, when he took Rebekah to be his wife. At the end of verse 26, it said, Isaac was 60, year old, 60 years old when she bore them. 
He interceded for his wife for 60 years. Interceded for his wife for 60 years is miraculous, or 20 years is miraculous. Absolutely miraculous. But just imagine, just imagine for the second, for a second, just imagine the implications of Rebecca's barrenness in this story. Imagine the implications of that. Think about the emotional toll first that you that these this couple would have had. They know that the promises are supposed to flow through them, but they can't get pregnant. Emotionally, that is wrecking for a couple, for a marriage. That is wrecking. Why is it wrecking? Because when you struggle with infertility, when you struggle with barrenness, when you struggle with having miscarriages, those aren't things you wear on your sleeve. You don't really ultimately talk about those things with anybody because the pain is so great. Women have been given a spirit and a, and a heart of compassion and of nurturing. And when that cannot happen, and it doesn't seem like it will ever happen for them, that is an emotionally wrecking thing. The husband has no answers. The wife has no answers. Both end up questioning the goodness of the Lord. If that is you in here this morning, then there is hope. Because the Lord is the one who opens barren wombs. The Lord is the one who opens barren wombs. We've seen that even as we've celebrated the birth of our very Savior Jesus from a virgin. A woman who had never had any kind of sexual interaction in her life. And the Lord opened her womb to produce our very Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If he can do that and he can open the wombs of people like Sarah and people like Rebecca, then he can bring that to you. Take faith. Take hope this morning. Take faith. And ultimately, if that does not come to pass for you, then Jesus ultimately at the end of the day, if you are in Christ, he will wipe away those very tears and he will be the very gift of your soul. He will be that gift for you. That's the emotional implications of that. Now think about the theological implications. The theological implications are this, is that the promise is supposed to flow through Abraham and now through Isaac and if they cannot get pregnant, if they cannot have a son through which the really the nations will be blessed, then ultimately God is not faithful to his own promises. Then ultimately God is a liar. But we see at the end of verse 22 that the Lord granted his prayer and his wife Rebecca conceived. The Lord is faithful to his own promises. The promise would continue. And ultimately we see in verses 22 that the Rebecca becomes pregnant and she has... Not one child within her, but two. She has not one child within her, but she has two. It says, the children struggled together within her. Not the child. The children struggled together. And so she goes and she asks the Lord, if it is like this, Lord, if it is thus, why is it happening to me? If it is going to be like this. I didn't ask for this. I asked for an easy pregnancy. I just wanted to have one son. I didn't want two, and I certainly didn't want them struggling together within me. If you actually go back to the Hebrew, this struggling together within her actually means the children are smashing themselves together. The children are at war within her. And so she goes and she inquires of the Lord. She asks, why is it happening to me? And the Lord replies. Third thing I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the sovereign grace of God. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Not only is Rebecca having two sons, not only is she having twins, these twins are going to become two nations. 
These twins are, are going to represent two different peoples, is what the Lord said. Two nations are in your room. Two peoples are within you, and they will be divided, is what the Lord would tell her. And not only that, the Lord says that the older will serve the younger. Now, culturally in this day, it was the oldest son who got the birthright. The birthright entitled the oldest son to get a double portion of inheritance from his father when his father passed away. He would be the one that would become the new patriarch of the family. He would lead the family, and the rest of his siblings would serve him as he led the family, as he is the one who's been given the most resources to lead the family. That was the cultural norm of the day. And the Lord completely reverses that, and he says that the oldest son would indeed serve the younger not the other way around. So here's the million-dollar question that we must at least touch on and address here this morning. Why? Why would, why would God make Jacob the child that would receive the promise and not Esau? Why would God make the Jacob the child that would get the birthright and not Esau? Why would he make the younger child the one that the promise would, would flow through? Why is that? Simply, it's because God chose Jacob. Simply put, it's because God selected Jacob. Or if you want to use theological language, it's because God elected Jacob. That's what we see here from the scripture. So we must, at this point at least, say that for long before this sermon has been preached, that the question and the debate of election has raged. And we're not planning to solve any of the problems that we have here. There's good brothers and sisters on both sides of this long debate. There's brothers and sisters on both sides of this long debate. With even our own denomination as Baptists, we have fellowship with those who believe differently on this issue within the Scriptures. This is not a primary gospel-centric issue. It's a secondary issue, but it is theologically important. We must at least address that, but what we can agree on this morning, whether or not you have a Bible in front of you, is that election exists, and that election is biblical. We cannot say that election is not in the Bible. We cannot say that. Believe it or not, election runs through the entire Bible. Why, would, why, why, why Abraham? Well, God chose Abraham. Why Noah? Well, God chose Noah. Why the nation of Israel? Well, God chose the nation of Israel from the rest of the nations he could have chosen or created. Must at least say that much. So what we're going to do this morning, instead of trying to think about this from a completely philosophical standpoint or from any other standpoint, we're going to try to think of election from a strictly biblical standpoint. We're going to use two different texts to help us shed light on what's happening here in Genesis 25. We have an Old Testament example where an Old Testament prophet literally talks about this very passage. And we have a New Testament example of where Paul talks about this very literal passage. So if you have your Bibles, flip to the Old Testament. Keep flipping. Flip to Malachi 1. Flip to Malachi 1 for me. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find the book of Matthew, just flip to the left a couple of pages. And you will have Malachi. 
Malachi is right before the intertestamental period is to take place, right before a 400-year silence that the Lord would have with his nation of Israel. The Lord speaks through the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel. This is after they have returned from exile. Verses 1 through 9, this is what the word of the Lord says. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Is he not the older one, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. What we see here is that 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 the Lord comments on what has already been written in the scriptures and he even takes it a step further and he says, I have loved Esau and I have hated, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. And then he draws out a distinction that through his love of Jacob, which will become the nation of Israel, in comparison to Esau, who would become the nation of the Edomites, we have a very vivid example of what the Lord feels about the Edomites. He says, I have hated them. I have laid waste his hill country. I have left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If they would want to rebuild what has been destroyed, the Lord says, they will build it, but I will tear it down. They will be called the wicked country. Why Israel? It's because God favored them. It's because God chose them. Why not Esau? Why not the Edomites? didn't choose them. If you'll flip to the New Testament, we'll look at another passage that comments specifically on this passage in Genesis 25. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9. It may be the hardest chapter in the entire Bible. Chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapters 11 really deal with the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation, but also human manly responsibility. That's what these chapters really deal with. So building off of what Paul has laid out in really chapters 1 through 8 of Romans, all of the glory that is within chapter 8, all of the memorable verses that you may have memorized that are in chapter 8 are hard things. And then Paul goes into really a diatribe in chapter 9. And he's speaking specifically, what, this, this nation of Israel, what about them? What about them? And these are his comments. We'll read probably about 17 or 18 verses. And as we go, I'll make comments on these things in which I'm reading. So follow along with me in Romans 9. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, what what do you have unceasing anguish about? What do you have sorrow about? For because I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I wish that I was not in Christ so that my brothers could be. They're my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants of which we've talked about even. The giving of the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the worship and the promises. is to them that belong all those things. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And from their race, according to the flesh, according to their very human nature, is the Christ. It comes from him. Jesus comes from that line. The Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul answers the argument. If the Israelites are not in Christ, then God's word has failed. And Paul already knows that that question is coming. And he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God has not failed, friends. And this is the important part, that for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We must make the distinction when we read scripture that there is a nation state of Israel. There's a political entity of Israel that the Lord has set up. And then there's a people of Israel who are the Lord's chosen people. There is an Israel within Israel. So not all Israel is Israel is what Paul says. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just simply because they are from his line doesn't mean that they are of the promise. But though through Isaac shall your offspring be named, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son, Genesis 17. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man. Children, not child, children by one man. Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good nor bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. He takes it back to before Jacob and Esau were even conceived. They never had a chance to perform any moral kind of action. They had never had a chance to do anything of that nature. But God chose Jacob rather than Esau. They couldn't prove themselves good or bad because it didn't matter. God chose beforehand. It's not because of what they did or what they would do, but because of what God's mercy should fall. Verse 12, Rebekah, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And right there, Paul literally quotes from Genesis 25, of which we've already read, and he also quotes from Malachi 1, which we've already read. In 14, here's the... Here's the Here's the argument as Paul has laid it out. He knows this other question is coming. He knows it's coming, but that's not fair. Paul goes ahead and answers it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's not fair. Is there injustice on the part of God? By no means. Make genita. It's the strongest negative in the Greek. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's talking about Exodus here. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on what you do or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, quoting Exodus again, For this very purpose I have raised you up. For this purpose, Pharaoh, the Lord says, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name, the Lord's name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Tough, hard scripture. We could keep going. Paul continues his argument And he goes into chapters 10 and chapters 11 and he deals with human responsibility of all these things. So that we must at least take away from these scriptures in this Bible at the very least whether or not you agree with what you've been read and taught here this morning. You must at least recognize even from the very words of scripture that election exists. It exists. So here's the, here's the popular arguments against election. Popular arguments that are against election. Firstly, we've already dealt with it a little bit. It's unfair. God's election is unfair. Friend, we must be careful to judge God and his fairness by our standards. Paul says that there is no injustice on the part of God. We must also remember that sin has completely ravaged us. But there's nothing in us or within us that we could do that could possibly save ourselves. We're all on the road to destruction. We're all on the road to really torment eternally in hell. Everybody. And God is merciful to save. And it is him that saves. If we all wanted fairness, then we should all deserve hell for our sins. That's what should be fair. We must also think about the second argument. It can't exist with free will. Election, God's sovereignty over all things, can't exist with human free will. First thing I'll say about God's sovereignty and human free will is that the most, most of the time when we're talking about human free will, we want to be able to be in control of our own actions. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm not in control. I've seen what my actions lead to. I don't want to be in control. A lot of times we want to just protect our own free willness, our own libertarian freedom, which we can have the the choosing of what we want. If it was up to you and your own libertarian freedom, you would have never chosen God. That's not what your heart wanted. Your heart wanted sin. Why? Because you love it. Can't exist with free will is the argument. Not only does election exist with free will, it's completely compatible with free will. The scriptures lay that out completely, that that election and God's sovereignty exist and it exists compatibly with human moral responsibility for their own actions. They both exist. They're both taught in the scriptures. We are responsible for our own actions. Well, I just can't believe that election and free will can exist together. Why not, friend? Why not? You believe, if you are a Christian, you believe that, that really seemingly paradoxes all the time. You believe that God came in the form of Jesus, and Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. You believe that. You believe that God himself wrote the scriptures, but that man wrote the scriptures with God. You believe in the verbal plenary theory of scripture. You believe that Jesus was predestined to come and to save his people from their sins. You believe that, but you also read in the scriptures in John where he went freely of his own accord to the cross. 
There are these things in the scriptures all the time where there is this mysterious tension of God's sovereignty and human free will. We must affirm that they both exist. We are responsible for our actions. God elects. People are responsible for their actions. His purposes stand. His redemptive purposes through election stand. Very simply, God's purposes in redemption for saving a people to himself for his own possession will not be thwarted by a person's choice. It's up to God. Back to Genesis 25. I want you to look at the birth and the comparison of the twins, Jacob and Esau. So we're going to look back at verses 24 through 34. Verse 24, Rebekah gives birth The twins are born. Esau, he comes out red and he comes out hairy like a cloak is what the scriptures say. He comes out first. Normally, the birthright would automatically at that point fall to Esau, but God has already ordained that the birthright would fall to Jacob. Jacob comes out second and he's clutching the heel of Esau. And we see from the scriptures that Esau, he grew up and he was a skillful hunter. He was a manly man. He was a lumberjack. He's probably a good-looking dude. He's covered in hair. He knew how to hunt. He knew how to farm. He knew what he was doing in the field. He was a burly man, and he was loved by his father, is what the scriptures say. And then we, get, we see Jacob. We see Jacob, and he's a mama's boy. He likes staying home. He likes to dwell in tents. He likes to cook. That's what really he likes to do. He stays indoors, and he hangs out with his mom. And we have these two starkly different pictures of, of these two brothers, very stark pictures of these brothers. And then we have this event in verses 29 through 34. That really plays out how they are and brings about the ordination of God. That Jacob at one point, after they had grown up, is cooking. He's in home. He's cooking this red stew that he really likes to make. And his brother really likes to make it. This lentil and red stew. And his brother Esau comes in. And he says, I'm really hungry. I'm exhausted. I feel like I'm about to die. You know what? Give me some of that stew, Jacob. And Jacob says, all right. I give you some of that stew and in his shrewdness and his really deceptive nature and his conniving way, he says, I give you this stew if you give me that birthright. I give you this right here if you give me that birthright. Esau in his unspiritual and impulsive nature says, okay, here it is. Birthright ain't going to do me any good right now anyway. And he starts to eat that red stew. And thus the purposes of God have come to pass already. They've come to pass already. The birthright now lays with Jacob, and he's the one that's going to end up receiving the blessing, even though he has to deceive his father to do it. Now Jacob's the one that is going to receive the blessing. So if you just look at a comparison of these two, we have Esau. He's the firstborn son. He's the older brother. He's a great hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He's a man of the field. He knows what he's doing with a bow and arrow and with a knife. He's favored by his father, Isaac, and he is a completely unworthy sinner. Is what we see. What about Jacob? He's the second son. He's the younger brother. He's a quiet man. He's prefer, he prefers to be at home. He's favored by Rebecca. He's calculating and he's deceptive and he's also an unworthy sinner. Neither one of them deserved anything from God. Neither one of them. If we thought through this with a cultural lens, we'd say, of course, we would choose Esau if we're thinking through a cultural lens. He's the man, he's the lumberjack, he's got the hair, he knows how to hunt, he knows how to provide, he, he seems like he knows how to lead. Yeah, we're going to choose Esau, Jacob, he's kind of a wimp. 
If we were thinking through a cultural lens, that's what we do. Now, if we're thinking through a biblical lens, and we're trying to think from God's point of view down, and we're looking at these two men, if we were God, we should choose neither. Because they're both unworthy. It's only by God's grace that he chose Jacob. So why Jacob? God chose him. Why Jacob? God elected him. That's, that's the only reason. So what do, you, what do you do with a text like this? What do you do with a hard text like this? How do you apply a text like, like this? What do you do with it? I want to give you four points of application this morning. Four points. Firstly, I want you to see the faithfulness of God to his promises. The first two patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, could do nothing to bring about a son. They could do nothing to bring about a son. Much less bring about a nation. Much less bring about a savior. Their wives were completely barren. Sarah was old. She was of old age and there was nothing that she could do. Rebecca just couldn't conceive for whatever reason, but the Lord opened both of their wombs. The faithfulness of God cannot be questioned. It is God and God alone who has acted every single point along this really 25 chapters of redemptive history, planning out and bringing his plans to fruition that his redemptive purposes stand, and they will stand, and they do stand. We can see that God alone brings about the salvation of his people and the accomplishment of his promises. We can see that. So he is faithful to his promises. What does that mean? It means that you can trust him. It means you can trust him. Second thing I want you to see this morning. I want you to see that when God revealed to Rebecca that the older would serve the younger, he was going against all cultural mandates at that time. He was going against every single cultural mandate at that time. We talked about the older son would be the one that receives the birthright. But when God chooses Jacob, he completely wrecks any kind of cultural norm or cultural mandate or cultural constriction that could have been put on him at that time. He breaks it all. We see him working not around cultural obstacles or really obstacles in general or trying to do anything to move his way around any kind of obstacle there there is he moves right through them and he still does the same thing today he still does the same thing today third thing that i want you to see this morning is god's grace is opposed to earning it's not opposed to effort god's grace is opposed to earning it's not opposed to effort do god's elective purposes stand in scripture yes they do Does the word say that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ? That those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Yes. Do God's redemptive purposes stand in all of these things? Yes. Does that mean that we get to sit around and wait for glory to come because God's purposes are going to come about regardless? No. We don't just get to sit around and wait for glory. We don't get to sit around and we don't get to wait for glory. The posture of one who has been saved by God is not one who is beating their chest saying, I am a Christian. That's not the posture of a Christian saying, yeah, I'm in Christ. That's not what what a Christian really is. 
Christian should be someone that's on their knees saying, I never deserve to be saved. I never wanted anything to do with God. I was lost as lost can be. And it's only through God's grace that I was saved. And so here I am in my own humility as much as I can give to serve you, Father. That's what the doctrine of election does. It breaks your knees of all of the pride that you may have. Breaks your knees completely. I must say that some of the best evangelists the world has ever seen have believed in the doctrine of election. You think about George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, the great preachers of the Great Awakening in the early 1800s. George Whitfield, it was said, he preached more than he slept. Jonathan Edwards may have been the smartest American to have ever lived. Other people from history who believed in the doctrine of election, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great British Victorian Baptist preacher in the heart of London, in a very messed up city, had over 5,000 people attending his churches. The best church planting movements have been led recently and in past times by those who believe in the doctrine of election. You think about John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church. You think about Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. You think about Matt Chandler with the Village Church in Acts 29. You think about J.D. Greer in the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. The Summit Church has planted more churches by themselves than the entire Southern Baptist Convention in the past five years. All these men believe in the doctrine of election the best missionaries and the best missionary agency leaders that we have and what we have seen believe in the doctrine of election. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma. Jim Elliott, the great missionary who was killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. William Carey, who spent his life in India building a missionary college and translating the Bible into many different languages. He was but a shoe cobbler. He went to India Think about Luther Rice, you think about John Patton, you think about Josh Cornett, and you think about David Platt, all missionaries. David Platt, former IMB president. You see, with, with, with the doctrine of election, there is absolute certainty that when the gospel is preached, people will respond. There's absolute certainty. It's not just a possibility. It's a certainty because God has ordained it to happen. People will come to faith when the gospel is preached. Therefore, we are to preach the gospel. We are to preach the gospel. We must preach the gospel. If God has ordained it to happen from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and to every nation to the ends of the earth, then we must preach the gospel. Because God has ordained it to happen from India to Bolivia, from Costa Rica to France, from Russia to Siberia, from Japan to Ecuador, from Chile to Canada to Oxford. We must preach the gospel because God has ordained people come to faith through it. When the gospel is preached, God uses his spirit to effectually call people to himself through the proclaimed word. Therefore, we must preach Paul makes that clear in Romans 10. We must preach. And we should labor hard knowing that God will indeed fulfill his promises of bringing people to faith in his son Jesus. Grace is opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We must give effort. But we must know that we give effort knowing that God has already saved us and there's nothing left for us to earn anyway. Are you being missional? 
knowing these doctrines. It should lead to mission. Fourth, I want you to see that God's electing love is a missional love. God's electing love is a missional love. So think with me. Trace the promise from Genesis 1.28. Trace that command, that promise. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. Have dominion over it. Take my image to the ends of the earth. Now it's been passed along to Abraham and now to Isaac. And what we'll eventually see is that it continues on through the nation of Israel. And then you have Jesus who comes. And he is this new Adam. And then after he is buried and he's dead and he's resurrected and he's suffered for our sins on the cross. And he, right before he rises and ascends to heaven, he gives the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and I will be with you till the end of the age. Think about the language. If the image of God is within people. And that image has been broken. It is through the gospel that that image is restored when people repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, a disciple is a person who has responded to the gospel and that image has been made new. And when we are obedient to making disciples, it should go to all nations and his promises of Genesis 1.28 is therefore fulfilled. God's electing love is a mission love. Now continue thinking with me. That's Matthew 28. Think about the end of the story. Think about Revelation. That from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, from all the corners of the earth, there will be people worshiping around the throne of the Lord, giving praise to the Lamb. Not only that, These are all the people who have been saved by God and their image has been made new. Taken to the ends of the earth. Now they're around the throne worshiping the Lord. And what you see is that really in that moment, if that is true, then he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the Son. It's a fulfillment of Genesis 1.28 that we will have ultimate dominion over the new earth. And we will see in that moment And at that time, that God has been faithful every single time. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that your word was rightfully proclaimed. I pray that you would continue to pierce our hearts through your word as we sing and as we respond. I pray that if people have questions, that they would come and they would talk and they would ask. Pray that you would continue to move here in Oxford through this church and through the proclamation of your word. I pray all of these things would happen, not for our own trophies and not for our own towers and not for our own glory, but Lord, for your glory and your glory alone. We want to see you glorified here in Oxford through the church at Haynes Creek. Pray these things not on our own merits or on the things that we have done, but on solely the precious merit of the blood of your son. Pray these things in your son's name.